0: I'm Aditya, an 18-year-old incoming law student.
1: And I'm Leo, an 18-year-old computer science student.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. Um, This time, this is a bit of a special episode for two reasons. One being um, Leo isn't actually here today. So it's just me. Um, Sorry if anyone hates that. Um, And another episode, another reason is we actually have another guest, back-to-back guest, everyone. This time, we have Mr. Wei Shen Ong, who is a former lawyer currently working in regulatory and compliance for Axiata Digital. After reading Law, at the London School of Economics, Mr. Wei practiced law for a number of years before making the switch to financial services. In this episode, Leo and I talk about Dr. Mr. Wei, about life as a student, his career, and the path forward. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Wei. Oh, thanks um, for having me. So how, how are you doing today? Um,
1: I'm doing good. I mean, it's... a uh... Weekends always nice. Recovering from work. Uh, preparing myself for tomorrow.
0: <laughs> yes, uh, weekly grind.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, speaking of that, um, I I figure we talk about academics first. Um, and sure, could you tell us a bit more about you know what it was like studying law at LSE? Um, how did you enjoy your time there?
1: Mm-hmm. Um. I imagine this is something that properly and any Malaysian student who goes abroad would experience, which is like, um, I suppose if your grades are good enough to get into a good university, um, you're probably used to being like a a bit of an overachiever, like throughout like primary and secondary school. And when you suddenly go into a place as uh, competitive as like Oxford, Cambridge or uh, LSE, um, suddenly it's like overnight almost, like you're you're suddenly nothing, right? And um, adjusting to that, can be a bit more jarring to uh, some than others, um, right. but it, it does, um, I, I think the typical reaction, which is the, the the good thing, is that it should probably like uh, urge you to work a bit harder to um, bridge that gap, because uh, for law especially, uh, law has a lot of its roots in philosophy, and sometimes political theory as well. Uh, these are areas that Malaysians have zero to no exposure to throughout like secondary school. Like, I mean, we, we have like, not really, actually not that I think about it. No, 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 we don't. We, we have kajan tepatan, we have like civics, but we don't have these subjects. So unless you were reading them up on your own time, you probably have zero foundation in those. And uh, what makes it worse typically is uh, for our North American counterparts. Law is a very common second degree for them after doing a first degree in philosophy or political theory. So when you have these people as your classmates, you feel incredibly inadequate. Like they're referencing all these things that you have never heard about. And they've learned these things as early as like 14, 15, like the very basics. So there's a lot of ground to catch up on. Um, But the great thing about law and the LSE was um, how they structured it was, The results of your first year don't count towards your final degree. So uh, provided that you pass, you can't fail. Um, So this gives you um, quite a bit of time to sort of catch up academically, um, to um, rectify the sort of inadequacies that I previously mentioned. But it also, it's nice because it gives you a lot of time to for lack of a better term, um, discover yourself, right? Because I mean, for a lot of people, this is the time where for the first time in your life, you're living alone without parental supervision, uh, you're free to try out any any hobby or interest that you want to pursue. Um, so, and London being, you know, a metropolitan, um, you um, lack of opportunity is typically not a thing there. Like you could literally pick up like the weirdest, most niche thing ever you could just go on like meetup.com and I guarantee you there's a group there that's doing it. So well, yeah, I mean, just, go, just write in, go <laughs> walk into their weekly me- meetings, say hi, make some friends. Um, yeah. And um, it, it it really is an experience that will um, encourage you to try new things. And at the same time, also embrace differences in people. Yeah. You know? Um, for, me, for me, what I did with my first year was, uh, it was, I, I, I mean, like most Malaysians, I guess, around that time, uh, Dota was really, really popular. Uh, this was around the time where the gaming industry, uh, this was around the time where Dota wasn't a game on its own. It was just a mod from Warcraft 3. And um, the gaming industry was looking to cash in on this sort of novel idea, so you, this was around the time where League of Legends was started by Riot Games. Um, there was another company called S2 Games that started Heroes of New Earth. Uh, Valve was also around this time, around the early design phases of what became Dota 2. So um, being a huge fan of uh, gaming and esports in general, I spent the first year of my <laughs> university life pretty much uh, uh, volunteering as a, a bit a um, bit of a journalist slash editor for an esports publication so uh, one of the really cool things I get to tell people nowadays is you know a lot of uh, quite a few of the like esports superstars that are uh, multi-millionaires nowadays I got to meet them when they were like just kids oh yeah you know? like do you follow
0: Uh Not really no.
1: Um, yeah, but I mean, it's I'm definitely a... cool, like being able to like be part of that, uh, even in like as someone who's like in the background, to witness that kind of growth. To um, back then, people were probably struggling to survive. A lot of these people were like eating ramen in their basements, but now it's a billion dollar industry. You know, that is
0: that is so cool. You know, being at the the start of something that eventually mm. blew up. It's like being yeah. one of the first few employees at Facebook, or something. Um, But, you know, I think you make a very good point about the fact that a lot of, I think there's a very big culture shock going to the UK, and then there's also that academic shock of, well, people are better than than me, and I'm not really used to that. Um, And that's something that uh, I am about to face, I guess. Um, I'm going to start my law and business degree at the University of Warwick in September. Um, So That's a good school. Yeah. So generally, what, what advice would you give to someone that is you know, looking to study in the UK this year?
1: Well, I mean, for this year and I guess last year, it's a bit of a very once in a lifetime unique sort of situation. isn't it? Uh, Unfortunately, I wouldn't have any first hand experience. Uh, hopefully, I suppose by the next intake, which I guess would be around like September, October-ish, um, vaccine distribution would reach the point where uh, in-person classes are kind of back as usual. Um, I think um, what I noted in the last year was that it, it has been a bit of a problem in the sense that certain schools, despite transitioning into a purely online curriculum, they were nonetheless charging full price for admission and tuition. Uh, I don't think that's fair, but um, unfortunately, unless the students are in a position where they can sort of collectively bargain, um, it may just be something that you just kind of have to take. But Um, I definitely think something should be done about that. It's um, it's kind of disingenuous to claim that online classes are the same as in-person classes, Uh, not just in terms of the value of the discussion, but also in terms of, I mean, part of the value of a degree is the networking, right? I mean, it's the friends and relationships that you form in the classroom. So if you strip that all away, it's definitely not the same value proposition. Right,
0: absolutely. Um, and like the final question, um, you graduated with really good results, um, especially with a law degree, which is notoriously hard. But what advice would you give students on trying to stay focused and studying? And I, I can imagine going to the UK and, you know, everything's new and you're trying to have fun and trying to meet experiences. And sometimes it can be just really hard to sit down and get to work, and really grind stuff out.
1: Um, I kind of have to confess a bit that I'm probably not the best person to give this kind of advice. <laughs> um, but uh, I'll, I'll just point out like a few things that I've noticed that is pretty common among students. I think I think students tend to worry about things that don't matter as much. I think in the grand scheme of things, uh, very very minor things like, for example, um, putting a lot of effort into memorizing full case names for for law. You know, it's uh. uh Sure, I mean, it's nice to have, but I don't, my experience has been, the examiner doesn't penalize you pretty much at all. Uh, I I was notoriously horrible at that. So uh, I tend to remember cases the way, you know, friends episodes are titled. You know, I always tell, when I refer to a case, it's typically, oh, you know, that case where that one guy did that thing? (laughs) And people just kind of catch on like, oh, okay, that's the case he's referring to. (laughs) Um, Because I don't think, it adds value to who you are as a person as well, I mean, for the job market, right? Because I mean, in real life, you get to look up the case and you just copy and paste the name. So it's kind of pointless um, training yourself up to be a person who can perfectly memorize case names, I think. Um, At the same time, I think um, law is unlike papers like um, maths, where there is no sort of objective right or wrong answer. right? Every paper is essay-based. It's about expressing your ideas to a certain extent. And I think um, a lot of students tend to be a bit too wary of having an opinion. Um, And to be fair, I think it's partially because they take away from lawyers that they see in practice, right? Who, as a whole profession, do tend to have commitment issues when it comes to having an opinion, right? I mean, you ask any lawyer about any issue, they tend to answer, it depends. And it's true to a certain extent. I mean, the the factual matrix does affect the nuances of the opinion. But um, sometimes they go out of their way to avoid giving a straight answer because um, there are commercial realities to uh, airing out your opinion on a certain issue in public. you may risk offending a client or a prospective client. And that, that's why lawyers do it in practice. But I think as a student, um, when you don't have that baggage hanging over your head, um, you should probably take advantage of that and just, yeah, just express yourself, you know, test the rigor of your ideas and your beliefs and see how it goes. I, I, I think um, even if you end up having an opinion that was, you uh, Not very popular with the examiner. I do think that examiners uh, value that um, and will probably score you higher as a result Um, because I mean think of it from the perspective of the examiner right I mean you're grading like probably thousands of papers on the same subject and it's going to be hundreds of the same variations of these are the arguments for both sides and you know I'm a bit on the fence and there's a time and place for both sides it's just really really boring to read in general right so i think even if you advance an argument that they don't really resonate with at least it's interesting you know
0: i get it i i completely understand i actually took that chance with the examiner when i did my a-level law exam um, (laughs) and because i i was kind of upset that my uh, professor kept telling me you know you can't you can't write about your opinion. you can't go against what the examiner uh, is saying yeah. as, a, as a fact. Uh, and I was like, I, That's not really how I want to study, isn't it? Um, it's, it's a very it Malaysian way of it,
1: thinking, as well, right? Because I mean, we, we see exams as a very transactional thing. Uh, like the, I'm trying to guess what the examiner wants me to say, and in exchange for that, yeah. he'll give me the, the grade,
0: right? It, it's so weird. Like, I, I went to a particular college, uh, learned for a particular subject, and um, <laughs> <laughs> they, they kept you know it was ready this is a textbook copy the textbook in your exam and mm-hmm. you'll be fine and that's not really how I think it should be studied yep. um, but, but thank you for that um, you know let's move on to uh, careers um, uh, just for a, you know a little bit of a transition can you tell us a bit about your transition from studying to working as a lawyer because I can imagine that's hard
1: it was very hard. It was particularly horrible for me uh, simply because I don't really have the, I, I'll, I'll just flat out admit that I don't have the traditional Asian work ethic <laughs> that um, I think most employers from this region typically expect. Um, I am privileged to have skills that are highly valued in the high skill labor market. And uh, honestly, if I had to rely on manual labor to make a living, I'd probably starve to death. Um, I suspect that I have a bit of ADHD, but I probably haven't gotten gotten it diagnosed, but my workflow, I consider it a bit more similar to uh, how creatives work, which is uh, I I prefer interacting with people. I like discussing with my colleagues, Uh, especially coming from a big firm. I felt that it better leverage the sort of wide knowledge base that we had. Sometimes you're handling a case where the best source of information is like literally like sitting two cubicles away from you. Right? So I, I like I, I like uh, engaging my colleagues, um, discussing issues. I like to um, I like to switch my environment up just to uh, see if it can induce some kind of creative spark that will add value to my work. So um, yeah, it's it's, it's very. Uh, I acknowledge that when you, you you work like that, it's very very difficult to uh, fit into the Malaysian market. But what I what I am thankful is that I've generally been able to find places that kind of allow me to do my thing. Um, so how you j- tend to manage these things within like a corporate constraint is like, for example, if you if you need like um, little rituals to like. Um, add some sort of spark to your day. I mean, it could be something as simple as having a daily ritual of going to the same coffee place every day, having a nice chat with the barista, um, and then going back to work. Uh, Or uh, it could be something as simple as a a hot desk kind of solution, right? I mean, uh, sometimes you work at your desk. Sometimes you work at the pantry. Sometimes you hijack a meeting room and just take it for yourself. yeah, these are things that you definitely need to sort of ask very hard questions of yourself and kind of just figure out a way to deal with it uh, to be able to deliver the work um, because I mean, to be fair to employers, right? I mean, they they have to design their workplaces around most people and your requirements probably are not applicable to most people. So you just kind of have to like handle it on your own. Um, I think workplaces in general are getting a bit smarter about this. Uh, partially, I guess, because of cost-saving reasons as well, they've been embracing like open workspaces and, uh, yeah, generally like the "quote-unquote" younger kind of style of office, which tends to play better with me anyway. So that that's good.
0: I, you know, speaking of delivering work, um, mm. there's this thing that you know, a lot of my friends we are afraid of is there's a very obvious gap in knowledge between. What you learn in university and then going and starting out and working although you're a junior you're expected to know and do certain things and and when you start out, it's going to be quite evident that you're not going to know nothing and your university degree may or may not help you in that regard. So how did you manage that.
1: Mm, To a certain extent it kind of depends on the I mean I'm assuming this is um, in the context of law but when you start in a new firm, it kind of depends on the dynamics of your team, I would say. So typically there would be a partner and there would be a few associates who are uh, senior to you. Um, I would say one of the most helpful things you can do as a junior is uh, find, a, find a senior associate or an associate who has the patience to kind of bear with you. Because like at the start, it's pretty normal for any newbie to have like a lot of questions. And that's a good thing. So uh, definitely just embrace it and just Ask away, with the understanding that you know as time moves on, you will be expected to ask less, need to ask less, right? Or at least you'll be asking better questions. Um, if you are uh, wary of the quality of your work, um, typically one one of the best ways to deal with it is to just hand it in early, right? So that there's generally more time for everyone else to help. Uh, Fix the quality of it and you know uplift it to a state where it's presentable to the client, right? So I mean, just just uh, if if let's say you're given like a two week deadline, hand it in like a weekend. So there's you have like one week
0: buffer, you know. Yeah, I think that I think that's fantastic. You know? When you submit something mm-hmm. that you're not sure of, bit earlier you have time to fix it rather than trying to make yeah, it yeah, perfect and- when you don't know buffer looks like.
1: And it's totally fine. And in fact, good practice to kind of highlight specific areas of your work and insert a comment there and be like, hey, I'm not too sure about this. So can you give this a bit more time? It's perfectly, it's well appreciated, I find.
0: And I, the next question, I'm sure you get this a lot. Um, but for the sake of the people listening, um, who are considering this, why did you leave the legal profession? Was it a push from being a lawyer, or was it a pull from the industry that you work in currently? What was that? You know, the straw that broke the camel's back, metaphorically speaking.
1: Okay, uh, I feel this is a question that typically gets, <laughs> gets asked, but to a lot of people who leave practice. So uh, let me switch up the tone a bit by starting like what I what I liked about practice. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I I came from a very big firm uh, in terms of headcount. We I think at one point had like a hundred ish lawyers at some point. And uh, what I always liked about um, being in a big firm was that typically you have a very huge cohort of young lawyers. Um, and, you know, statistically, when you have that many people, you, you also tend to have a lot of good people and um there was a genuine sense of camaraderie. Uh, you have a very solid sort of brain's trust that you can bounce opinions off of. These are people that you have very high respect for, and you can definitely see, you have faith that these people will go far in their careers. And, you know, it will, there, there are very long term benefits to having these people in your network. So, um, yeah, that, that, that was one of the most um mm, genuine things I find about like practice because I mean eventually as you spend so much time around these people uh law is notorious for long work hours you see these people more than like your friends or family combined and um eventually you 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 do start developing very genuine friendships you know and uh that's what I love the most about practice but I felt that at the time um management didn't quite see it the way we did. And um, some of them tried to implement measures that were a bit more from the traditional school of employee management, right? So they wouldn't see things like, um, they wouldn't see things such as employees building relationships among one another as things like improving morale or uh, building or team building in general, right? They will see it as Oh, these people are talking, they're wasting time, they're not at their desk turning out the next opinion or the next document. And um, when I brought up these things, uh, you know, it's, I I was given a pretty straight answer to be fair, which they, they some of them kind of admitted that that was kind of the point, right? We watched you to uh, sit down and just do the work. And I, I've definitely noticed that certain partners do make it a point to. Um, discourage closeness amongst the associates in their team simply because they're worried that if one resigns that they all kind of resign as a block yeah. and it would be a huge problem for them because to be fair it has happened before in the past like sometimes a team just kind of implodes and all the associates leave and set up their own firm <laughs> and indirectly you've kind of just created a competitor so uh yeah but i i didn't quite like how they handled it and um that combined with like the usual factors of know the long hours the mediocre compensation and just general burnout in general uh it definitely caused me to look at other options elsewhere um the reason why i didn't join another firm and just decided to leave practice in general is because i felt that each firm kind of had their own problems like uh they're not the same problems but they're typically variations of a similar problem which is uh which contributes to the industry wide beam of, you know, long hours, mediocre conversation. Um, and as a whole, I think young lawyers just feel that unless you are setting up your own firm and sort of eating what you kill, um, the reward just isn't worth the effort put in and, uh, almost any other industry would be more palatable. So that, that's why I ultimately left. Um, I actually left a year after I felt like leaving because um, I wasn't quite ready to like uh, say goodbye to like the relationship that I formed within the firm I definitely would, I definitely still miss them from time to time and I do make the time to like meet up with them but uh, over time you, you, you also start seeing like familiar faces start to leave and you know eventually the firm gets replaced with like new faces that you don't recognize anymore so eventually you also feel like your time is up <laughs> so
0: It is what it is, you know? Right. I think that's a very candid response. Thank you for that. Now, I was reading (laughs) the, there was a comparison of um, different uh, jobs that have really long hours. So like investment banking, consulting, you know, being a lawyer. And there was this uh, McDonald's chart where they said, essentially, if you compare it, the amount that you make working as a lawyer, investment banker, consultant, divided by the hours you put in, you actually earn less than what a McDonald's employee would earn for the number yeah, that they were. I, I've seen that before. You, I've seen
1: that analogy before.
0: <laughs> I just find that ridiculous. Um, mm. But, but you know, l- law law aside, just in generally speaking, um, transitioning from one industry to another can be a bit challenging given the fact that, you know, especially if you're doing law, like yes. you're exposed to certain things and you're certain comfortable with that environment. Are there some things that you do differently with the hindsight that you have with that transition period?
1: Um, gosh, um, let me preface this by saying that because I think I'm going <laughs> to, I'm about to offend a group of people. But let me just preface this by saying that I don't mean any offense. But I just think that maybe you guys are not very well equipped with the tools to make the proper assessments when it comes to the process. I think the biggest problems with legal people leaving practice in general is HR people, and I think it's partially because HR people tend to not be legally trained, so they don't quite understand like how a lawyer sort of develops their career from like pupilage to associate to senior associate, and the General skill sets that are valuable to a lawyer. So sometimes companies put out like the most ridiculous job descriptions I've seen, and it's like, I I honestly don't know where they find these people because I I don't think these people exist. So I was I remember an interview once. This was for a legal role, so it wasn't even like me trying to go into marketing or sales or whatever. This was a legal counsel role, and uh, they told me. It was a two PQE role. So they wanted a second year-ish lawyer and they wanted someone with like good experience in m and employment, general litigation, intellectual property. And I was just looking at them and I was like, there's no second year in the market that has such a wide experience, you know? Like if someone says that, they're probably lying, <laughs> lying. or they've done each of those things once. Right. You know, so I, I just, uh, and sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll throw up job description to say like, oh, we want 10 year PQE. So think about it in terms of like who that lawyer would be, right, in practice. If you're in practice for 10 years, you're probably really close to partnership already. Right, and you, you want that person to throw all that away for like 8,000 a month. It, it just, oh. uh, some, some, some job offers just don't make sense. So I, 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 I don't know where that sort of, Break off in communication happens, but uh, uh, I, I look at a lot of JDs and I do strongly suspect that they're not drafted by legally trained people.
0: Yeah. That makes everything I've said something to be on a lookout for. Um, but can yeah. you tell us a bit more about what you do now? Um, how do you like oh, sorry, sorry. Uh,
1: now? now? Um, actually, let's bring it back a bit a because bit, I think uh, I have a bit more to add to the previous point. I guess we can just cut this sort of in between. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think when it comes to like navigating your career, you should sort of. Um, I think the most app analogy that I can think of in my head is think of it as a skill tree, in like a game, an RPG. You know, um, but the difference is it's a game of uncertain information, right? Think think of a skill tree that sort of unlocks each level. But you can't see how the full skill tree will flesh out. And you have no idea how your career will ultimately play out in the same way. So um, a lot of it comes down to decision making in an environment of uncertain information. Um, And you kind of need to just make the best calls in that sort of slice in time that best sets you up for the next decision making point. So, for example, I'm currently at Azela Digital. My current portfolio uh, comprises of like regulatory compliance and risk work. So, w- what was my thought process when I picked it was because I felt that one of the sort of biggest gaps in terms of the values that a lawyer delivers is that lawyers typically advise on like what the law is, uh, how cases will be interpreted, what is a likely outcome uh, if it goes to court. But when it comes to like what a client should implement internally or how they should go about achieving certain regulatory outcomes, certain lawyers can fall a bit short. Uh, I, I know there are some firms that specialize in doing that kind of thing, but it doesn't seem to be very common in, in, in the industry. So uh, typically clients with those kinds of needs will go to like big firms firms right PwC, Deloitte, EY, they all have specific risk advisory functions that specialize in setting up risk control frameworks, risk assessments, those kinds of things. And I kind of wanted to add that to my skill set. I felt that it had really high synergy uh, with being a regulatory lawyer. So at that point in time, I felt that this was probably the best decision for me. right? So, I mean, think of like the most common game of uncertain information, right? It would be like poker, I guess. Um, When you're starting out your career, all you see is the flop. You you don't see what the last two cards are. And based on your starting hand, you just kind of have to place your bets accordingly. And trust that in the long term, if you make the right decisions, uh, more likely than not, it will play out well. So... I guess, um, in a lot of ways, it's kind of similar to how a startup scales up, right? You, you start small, you start with one thing, and then you see what works and what doesn't work with that thing, and you rinse and repeat. Like, you, you find further ways to add value to um, your practice or your area of work. Uh, sometimes it could be adding width. Sometimes it could be adding depth, right? Some people choose to be super, super specialist in something super, super narrow, but which may give them a disadvantage when it comes to interviewing for certain roles. But all they need is like that one job offer where they are by far the best candidate compared to everyone else. And yeah, all of a sudden you find themselves in a position where they are very successful. So I guess um, when it comes to like career planning and stuff like that, we, we, we do have to like sometimes take a step back and just see like, What are the relevant decision-making points that you will face in your career and kind of ensure that even though each decision is driven by very um, different factors which are relevant to your point in life at that time, you should ensure that on an overarching level there's a very strong sort of strategic direction that steers it in a similar direction you know.
0: That's very, very helpful. I, I'm actually planning the, the direction I'm going. I, I'm, I'm just doing a bunch of things. Uh, you know, I, I, I work in HF I Think Tank. I'm an associate at a consulting startup at the moment. I did a hackathon last weekend. I'm kind of everywhere um, at this point. So I'm trying to break it down and focus on, on a couple of things. So that was really, really helpful. Um, speaking yeah, sure. of the, the things that, you know, your skill set and your skill tree. Um, I see that you have a number of certificates like Intro to Blockchain from INSEAD. Ha, has this helped you in your line of work? And do you recommend people to take it? Because I'm, I'm quite weird. like I, I did a couple of LinkedIn learning certificates like communication um, and, you know, conflict management and stuff. And it was fun to learn, but I don't know if it has the weightage that people that advertise it says it does. So
1: um not directly no um because uh
0: we
1: my current company I mean we 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 are interested in the space of blockchain. I think there's been a general interest for quite a while now but we we currently do not do any uh blockchain related um, transactions or use cases. Um but uh it goes back to what I previously said, right? I think uh, it's it, it's useful to add these things to your skill set, especially if it's an emerging area, simply because at that point in time, you have no idea how the future will play out, right? I mean, blockchain could be like the next big thing ever, like in terms of actual application in real life, or it could be the next segue. We really don't know at this point, right? I mean, Google Glass was hyped up to be like the next big thing for like that. the longest time. And when, when it rolled out, it just bombed, you know? So... <laughs> Um, As someone who like was interested in that space, I mean, I'm more interested in blockchain technology than um, cryptocurrency in general, but um, it was just a matter of familiarizing myself with the subject matter, which I think is helpful in general, because uh, it's definitely helpful when it comes to talking about it with uh, people in industry, because uh, I think often there's a tendency for things like blockchain, and this goes for other words like machine learning and all that to be like just buzzwords that executives like to throw around without necessarily knowing what they mean. So it, it was helpful in terms of getting into the nitty gritty and understanding the um, fundamentals as to how the blockchain works and uh, it made me a more informed individual on the subject. But uh, and one or two companies have like sort of inquired as to like whether I would be interested in like doing stuff for them, like in terms of blockchain stuff, but uh, direct impact on my career? No, that's fine, no. But it's just something that uh, I did because I had the time and um, I don't regret it. I think it's definitely just, if anything, it has given me more perspective.
0: How, do, how actually did you get the um, certificate from internet because you know, NCAT is it a dummy course or
1: uh, it was uh, it was a course on Coursera. So yeah. So it, was it was a
0: course, was a course on, on Coursera,
1: out. but uh, the course I believe was done in collaboration with NCAT and um oh gosh, I can't remember the guy's name, but it was the guy who wrote the book uh, Blockchain Revolution. I don't know his name
0: either. Um, yeah. All right. So uh, the final segment is what I call power questions, which is sure. stuff that I, I ask most people about the future and just general student advice. So I want to talk about internships a bit. You know, did you yeah. do anything when you were studying? What do you think? You know, how how do you see internships helping students? And you know, do you have tips on getting internships?
1: Um. Okay. Uh... Let me preface this by saying that I used to be a very different person in university. I used to be like, I was a very quiet kid and um, my career aspirations were also drastically different. So at one point I was pretty sure that I was just going to go into academia. I'll just sit in an office doing research all day and writing papers that are like sky high in terms of like the level of practicality and, you know, criticize people for fun. Um, That changed. Uh, in my third year, <laughs> and um, by the time I made that switch, there was really no time to like do internships or whatever. I, I graduated with zero internships under my belt, um, and, but what kind of came out of that experience is I've definitely found that having no internships at all, contrary to a, a very common fear that most law graduates have, isn't necessarily detrimental to like your job hunting experience. Like I was able to secure people positions pretty quickly. Um, I don't think it had a detrimental effect but I do think that internships are valuable but maybe not in the sense that certain law graduates believe in. I don't think it matters too much in terms of like padding your years of experience Um, but internships are very valuable in terms of getting to know a firm so it's a very valuable time to go in there, get to know associates, get to know partners, especially if you know the practice area that you're already interested in, then you know, these people could very well be your future colleagues, your boss. Um, establishing those relationships definitely help in terms of getting your foot into the door later on. Um, it's, it's very common actually, when a particular intern is very impressive, uh, law firms will typically just tell them, look, do your CLP when you're done, uh, just write in. Your publish spot is pretty much secured. You know, and yeah, it's just a matter of. Um, I wouldn't call it favoritism. It's really just a matter of uh, partners and law firms preferring people who they know are definitely good compared to you know an unknown quantity that will come in through an interview.
0: Um, I'm 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 pretty focused on transparency. I'm pretty focused on transparency. Sorry, uh, interrupted. I'm pretty focused on transparency, and in, in the interest of full disclosure, you know, given the fact that I I don't want people to think that they shouldn't do internships um, mm. because it, it'll all be okay. But do you do you personally think that the fact that I assume you did pupilage in Malaysia? Yeah, yeah. So do you, do you think that the fact that you studied in LSE played a, a really big role in the fact that you could secure pupillages easily? I yes. Yes.
1: Um, I mean, that, I guess, coupled with the fact that I generally interview well, so um, I think that's fine. I think I think I think uh, it, it may help, especially if you feel that you have certain deficiencies in your CV that you feel that you need to make up for. Um, but ultimately, I think it, the most valuable thing that internship can bring you is that sort of instead of limiting yourself to a one hour interview to impress a lawyer to give you a people's spot, you're essentially giving yourself a one month audition to kind of prove that um, you can work, right? I mean, th- th- this is particularly important for people who may not interview well, they may not be very good at speaking or articulating themselves, but they can do the work, right? So if, if that uh, sort of fits your scenario, then definitely go for more internships. But I feel that, um, I-, I just wanna bring up the point that I think internships have a very strong point of diminishing returns. So like, I think three or under is probably fine, but anything more than that is probably a bit overkill. Like definitely spend your summers doing other things as well.
0: (laughs) Um, I'm already on my third internship. So that is quite a shocker to (laughs) me. Um, but I I, I did a lot of internships in, in different different areas. So I did one. I was one for YB Chalta Diago in Klein. Um, mm. I did one in iPrice. I was a uh, intern in the business development session. And then I did one. I'm doing. I did one for a bit for a. You know, I was doing research for a bit. And then right now I'm I'm not really an intern, but I'm associate for a consulting startup. So. But I I, I think, think internships in. Just,
1: I think internships in non-law firms can be quite valuable actually because um there's a tendency for law firms to do a lot of things in-house so like a lot of law firms do their own marketing for example they don't hire graphics designers they don't hire marketing people so if you have that kind of skill set it's kind of just a value add to your uh, general proposition Uh, and Partially, why it is the case is because, you know, law firms generally have problems uh, attracting non-legal talent, right? Because there's kind of like an implicit glass ceiling on their career progression. If you're a marketing person and you join a corporation, you could be CMO one day, but in a law firm, that's not going to (laughs) happen.
0: Yeah, Yeah. that that makes sense. Um, So we're back to our final question. Um, This is something that I I make it a point to ask everyone. You have (laughs) a, a person who is a a driven ambitious young person who's about to enter university or is in university and they come to you and they just ask you for advice and say i i don't know what to do uh just what what do you think they should learn and keep in mind if they want to really just be the best at whatever it is they do what are some foundational skills that you think will compound and build in the long term what would you tell them
1: mm, okay Th- this is a bit of a cop-out answer but um My answer isn't really a particular kind of skill because I think honestly uh, things like soft skills and technical skills they kind of depend on which field you want to be in there really isn't uh, an answer that applies to everyone right I mean that was the whole I find that that was a pretty big problem with like Asian parents in general over the last two generations right it's why we have way too many doctors nowadays and it's why we had way too many IT people like 10 years ago everyone just kind of picked this industry as oh this is the big thing and then sent all their children there and uh, what happened was in the 10 years, uh, the job market changed. And (laughs) these people, uh, especially if these were degrees that they didn't individually want to do, I I feel quite bad for them. But um, yeah, there there isn't a silver bullet kind of thing in terms of like what skills you need to thrive in the job market. I think ultimately we benefit from diversity. And I think in in that respect, you kind of just need to be, um, you need to hold, firm onto your truth and your kind of journey, your individual kind of journey, right? Um, But I will say this, I think, uh, uh, I'm cringing a bit because this is a bit of a cheesy answer. I think you should face more emphasis on the type of friends you keep around you. Because uh, I once came across this quote, I can't remember the exact wording, but the gist of it was basically, you become the average of like your five best friends. And while I don't take that literally, I do think there is an element of truth in that. I think as you go on through life, you will go, you will, you'll face lots of difficulties, right? Not just career, but also like personal life, um, and everything in between. Uh, I think it's really generally useful to have like a close knit group of people whose opinions you trust, and also you respect their sort of moral character, so that when you're in that sort of position, you have uh, an esteemed sort of panel of people that you can consult. And hopefully, that steers you in the right direction. Because you know everyone uh, goes through their downtimes, right? So right. it's not really realistic to expect people to be able to make the best decisions on their own when they're in that state of mind. So um, yeah, and I think people tend to not appreciate the importance of this until they are actually in those times. And friendships aren't really something that you build overnight. So uh, I think probably in terms of, like if, in terms of advice to like young people, that's probably the most important thing. I apologize for it being super cheesy. I know it's like a standard anime power of friendship kind of <laughs> ending, but <laughs> it is what it is.
0: <laughs> yes. So thank you so much. That brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, I really want to thank you for taking your time out on a Sunday afternoon to answer all of our questions. Um, sure. I, I really hope that you also enjoyed talking to me. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank have you for having me. as so well. great have rest of the day.
1: You too. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to see more of what we do, Head to uh notso serious.com that is N O T S O R S F R S dot or follow us on Instagram at N O T S O uh, S R S Not So Serious <coughs>